For our J-term, we are examining for three weeks the triune God's activity in creation, and especially his ordaining of creation ordinances. When our Lord wove into the fabric of his world these mandates, we have begun to see God working. And since we're, this was last week, since we're made in his image, all people must work and be productive from the youngest to the oldest. That was week one. We looked at the first creation mandate, that of labor. And as I said last week, parents, your, your goal, one of your many goals as a parent, is to teach your children how to work an eight-hour day. If they can do longer, that's even better. Um, but to teach your children, one of the things when you springboard your children out of your home they ought to be proficient in is being able to string together eight hours of work. That's, that seems like a pretty minimum requirement, actually. And so we saw that that, but doing much more than that, working for God's glory, working in the name of Christ, those things, that that was a mandate woven into the fabric of creation, as we said last week, with each of these creation mandates, the society that ignores them or demeans them usually ends up imploding because God has made these mandates, these, these um, ordinances so vital that it's, it's difficult, if not impossible, for a society or culture to survive or especially to prosper without them. Today we're going to see, uh, in our second week looking at these creation mandates, we're going to see the, the creation ordinance of the Sabbath. And what we'll find is we're going to take a huge leap from last week. We saw the creation mandate of what to do with six days of our week, and God has mandated that for everyone everywhere. This is normative for all places last week that people are to labor six days. And as we said, this goes counter to the, the common modern view that says, no, I'm on that 5-2 schedule. I'm we, I, I work as little as I can for five days, and I'm lobbying for four, and then I have at least two and hopefully three-day weekends. So I know the pattern in Scripture is six and one, of labor six days, and that's even given as the first part of the fourth commandment. So today we're going to move and leap from the mandate to labor to the mandate to rest. And what we're going to find, and this is a little bit shocking, it's astounding, and it will take some explanation that we'll try to do, we will see God not creating on the seventh day, but resting. And by that, we're going to explain what that means when the Lord rests, and we're going to see that the Lord does that to establish a pattern that will hold true for all time. And in so doing, these first two, and why I wanted to put them together, of, of work and now rest, in so doing, the Lord of creation has taught us how to mark and measure time, taught us how to spend time. He gives us the mandate and the pattern that every person everywhere should labor six days. And every person everywhere should cease from their self-directed labors for one day every week. I want to think for just a moment with you about how our forefathers viewed this creation ordinance. Because there are some of you, especially if you're significantly younger than me, you've never seen a Sabbatarian culture. When we were in Las Vegas, we had a, a really neat elderly lady who'd grown up in Western Canada, and she had come up to me after I'd preached on the Fourth Commandment, and she said, Carl, when I was a young lady, there was one store open in our fairly large town. And she said it was only open from like 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., and she said it was only open for necessities like milk and bread and medicine and that sort of thing. And she said, the back door was open. 
And she said, if you, you went there, it was a little bit troublesome to get there, but you had to knock on the door and you had to explain why your ox was in the ditch and you needed milk and bread and that sort of thing. And said, you couldn't go in. They would just bring to the door what you needed, and they wouldn't take your money on the Sabbath. They would write you out an IOU, and, and she said, this was how life was. Well, for those of you who think this is crazy, William McKinley, our 25th president, ran for president and succeeded on a platform of Sunday legislation and strict observance of the Sabbath, and won overwhelmingly. Think of when the last time a candidate for dog catcher ran on observance of the Sabbath. Now, this is a fascinating book. It's called The Blue Laws, Earliest Laws of Connecticut and New Haven, because they were called blue laws because they were printed on blue paper. This is the legal code, um, Puritan New England, the legal code of Connecticut, just to show you how far our society, social scientists would say we've become enlightened, I would say we've, we've plunged downward. This is the legal code. First of all, notice how small it is, how few laws. And th these are some highlights out of there. Adultery, bestiality, and homosexuality, page 28, all death penalty offenses, like they are in Scripture. Parents are mandated by law to catechize their children, on page 39. These are the civil laws. Idleness is deemed unlawful and punishable by fines on Monday through Saturday. And then the most fascinating, page 44, every citizen must attend worship on the Lord's Day or be fined five shillings. These are our forefathers. This is our heritage. Now, we as Presbyterians, we are Sabbatarians. We have a whole chapter in our confession on the right observance of the Lord's Day. And so what that means is your elders, your pastors have the highest views of the Lord's Day that God has created. And this goes much deeper than you think. But I, I'm concerned about the wholesale rejection of the Lord's Day by many even evangelicals, mostly in my lifetime. I agree with William Gladstone, the former Prime Minister of England, who said these words in his speech. He said, tell me what the Christian men of England are doing on Sunday, and I will tell you what the state of England is. The careful observance of the whole Lord's Day is a predictor of the future and an identifier of the culture. I'm, I'm not concerned at all about the world's practices. Lost men are going to act like lost men, and they hate all of God's commands. But my deep concern is for the people of God, that they are giving away one of God's finest gifts, his highest blessings, the Lord's Day, and for no reason. I'll, so I don't sound like my granddad, back in my day, but I'll, I'll quickly say this. When Sandy and I were kids, and you're going to gasp, so I want you to check my witness here, check with Sandy. When we were kids, liberal churches had morning and evening services. Now, I realize this is Oklahoma, not New York City, but uh, you, there was no such thing as a Protestant church that didn't have morning and evening worship. And, and Sandy, because Yukon, Oklahoma, was much more sanctified than Del City, Oklahoma, uh, in Yukon, Oklahoma, on Monday morning in the public school where Sandy went, they had what was known as the Sunday school banner in every class. And, and uh, the, the class who had the highest Sunday school and worship attendance got the banner placed over their door. And it was highly coveted. And, and, and sometimes they would have a tie where 
this class would have 30 out of 30 kids who were in morning worship, and that class would have 30 out of 30 kids who were in morning worship. So the runoff was who had the highest attendance at evening worship. And that was, that was the coveted banner to have. And so Sandy and I are just old enough that we grew up very much so in a Sabbatarian culture where there were rarely any shops open and, and morning and evening worship was a norm. By the way, if you've wandered in here and you're wondering what type of church Woodruff Road is, that's the type of church we are. That's the culture we're, we're creating is a, a, a culture that loves the Lord's Day. If you think, why is that? It's because what I'm going to demonstrate now that the Lord's Day, the right observance of it, is something deeply embedded in God's view of his creation, that this is a creation ordinance. And so you'll need your Bible. I hope you have that. Uh, by the way, the, the resource that if, if this piques your interest today and you think, I, I need some more study, the principal resource on this is from our dear brother in the faith, Dr. Joseph Piper. 220 pages called The Lord's Day. He actually did a seminar on this for us last year, two years ago. It's an outstanding treatment. Uh, it's very contemporary. It's very practical. He's going, uh, you will notice if you have this, you're going to say, Carl, that, what you just said sounds an awful lot like Dr. Piper. Yes, it's because I'm plagiarizing from him. So uh, the, the key here is to know who to steal from, and it's Dr. Piper. This is the best resource done in the last 150 years or so. Very practical. Dr. Piper was a pastor, is a pastor now. He's, he and, and Zach Groff are doing a revitalization work of Antioch Presbyterian. So this is, uh, I, can't, I can't say enough good about this as a resource. And no, you can't have my copy. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. So you can, you can go get copies in the library and make sure and elbow everybody else out of the way and go get that. So let me, let me make my case. For those of you who think the Sabbath, this is some, you know, relic of Puritanism in the 17th century or something like that. What I want to convince you of is this, this course is about creation mandates and creation ordinances. The Sabbath is a creation ordinance. It's woven in from the very beginning of time. There are a number of reasons why the Sabbath pattern of six days of labor, one day of rest, must be considered universal and perpetually binding upon all men everywhere. Let me say that again. The, the, the concept of Sabbath or Lord's Day is universal. This means it doesn't matter what town you go to, what continent you're on, this is binding on all people everywhere. And so when we speak of it as a creation mandate, creation ordinances, creation mandates are ethical norms which are based on the work of God in creation. They depict the constitution of things as they were intended to be, fresh from the Creator's hand. They, creation ordinances, cover and regulate the whole gamut of life, from bearing children, which we'll see next week, superintending the earth as a responsible steward under God, responsibly ruling the, cre uh, the creation, uh, taking dominion over it, finding fulfillment and satisfaction in work, which we saw last week, and resting on the Lord's day, and as we'll see again next week, enjoying marriage as a gift from above. So the creation ordinances have, as I said, a universal element inherent in them. And it's clear from Jesus' teaching. Again, I want you to see this in your own Bible from Scripture. Look at Matthew 19, and I'll ask you to use your Bibles quite a bit this morning because I, I, I really want you to see. I know there's a built-in tendency to forget, ignore, 
and push back against the fourth commandment. It's fascinating how you have, at least from kind of typical right-wing conservatives, the statement, we need to restore the Ten Commandments. Oh, so you're a Sabbatarian. No, not at all. Oh, so really what you're about is the Ninth Commandment. And, and, and really what it gets down to is usually it's about the Three Commandments. is don't steal my stuff, don't lie to me. It's, that's what it is. But I want you to notice what Jesus teaches about the Fourth Commandment, Matthew 19. It's, it's, it's clear what he teaches about all creation ordinance. This is in his teaching on divorce in Matthew 19, 4 and following. It says, he who made them at the beginning. Notice what Jesus is saying. He's saying, here's my argument. This goes back to creation. Jesus doesn't say, well, um, the laws of 2013 say. No. Jesus roots ethical behavior in creation. He says, he who made them at the beginning, made them male and female, and said, for this reason. And so Jesus says the reasons for a strong view of marriage and a strong view as opposed to divorce is because of God's work in creation at the beginning. And so we as believers always need to be going back to the fountainhead, to the sources, and saying, did God speak about this in creation? So notice again, look at Exodus chapter 20. You'll want to keep one finger there. This is the giving of the fourth commandment. And I'll point out while you're turning there, one of the things that should show us the, the importance of the fourth commandment, it is by far, look at how much room it takes up on your page in Exodus 20. It is by far the longest statement of the commandments. I had the pleasure last week of, of listening to one of our covenant children recite the shorter catechism. Yes, you seminarians, you could learn something from little girls here at Woodruff Road. But... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, and when they recited, when I said, what is the fourth commandment? And they gave the answer. They had to draw a deep breath and say, the fourth commandment is because it's long. Look at it in verse 11 and following, or verse 8 and following. Remember, that's the first word. Notice that no other commandment begins with that word. Why? Because we're prone to forget it. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But in the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, your female servant, your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days, now notice the rationale. Look at the rationale given to Israel. At that point, creation was only, what, 2,200 years old? And notice what the Lord does. He refers them back, thundering from the top of Mount Sinai, he refers them back to creation in verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, the rest of the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And so this is referring back to a specific action that God took in creation. So now look back to Genesis 2 and see the original statement about the creation mandate of the Sabbath. So we've just been treated to in Genesis 1 the, the six days of creation where God is, is laboring. And then we read these words in Genesis 2. Again, woven into the fabric of creation at the very beginning. And so for the person who labors on this day, the person who does their own thing on this day, the person who says, well, it's a, Carl, I like to think of it as a family day. I hear that all the time. I'll say, no, that family day is called Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Today is the Lord's day, period. But notice what we are told at the very beginning. Then the, thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and 
He rested. Those words are super significant. He rested. That's the pattern. The Lord rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. And then notice what's topped up, hopped on top of that. Look at verse 3. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because he in it, he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. The fact that the Holy Spirit records for us that God rested from his creative labors on the seventh day, blessed it and sanctified it, set it apart from the other six days is profoundly significant. Jonathan Edwards said this, what could be the meaning of God's resting the seventh day and hallowing it and blessing it, which he did 2,000 years before the giving of the fourth commandment, unless he hallowed it and blessed it with regard to mankind. For he did not, still Edwards, did not bless and sanctify it with respect to himself, or that he within himself might observe it, as that is absurd. It's unreasonable to suppose that he hallowed it only with respect to the Jews, a particular nation which rose up 2,000 years after. But it is for all men everywhere. So God's mode of operation is, on, is the example on the basis of which the sequence for man is patterned. There can be little doubt, look at Genesis 2-3, that there's a reference to the blessing of the seventh day in man's week. And when we compare it closely to the giving of the fourth commandment in Exodus 20, we find it refers specifically to the Sabbath instituted for man. The fact that uh, the Sabbath as a creation ordinance applies to all mankind and not just the Jews is this. Adam was the covenant representative of the whole human race and not just the Jews. There was no, no Judaism. There was no Abrahamic people then. It was just Adam, the representative of all people. And so the first people were placed under this mandate to keep the day. Furthermore, every human being except Jesus descended from Adam by ordinary or natural generation. The separation of humanity into distinct people groups and language groups didn't occur until long after the fall at Babel in Genesis 11. If Adam had not fallen, the Sabbath ordinance would have still regulated the activities of himself and his posterity. This commandment is given in a perfect, unfallen world. This was good for perfect men. So the seventh day, look at it there in Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3, in which God rested was was Adam's first full day of existence. Now note carefully, the sixth day was the day that God created Adam. So the seventh day was the first day after that. Adam never knew a week without the Sabbath. From the day he was created, what's the next day? The Sabbath. He was created on the sixth day and God rested on the seventh day. So not only was Adam to pattern himself after the divine example, but Adam's rest was spent in celebrating God the creator. The Sabbath rest was not just a cessation of labor, but a time of worship and fellowship and celebration of God's greatness. God fully intended that unfallen man, Adam before the fall, in his task of godly dominion, would need to suspend his weekly labors in order to refresh himself with the exercises of concentrated worship. This fact is often overlooked because as fallen creatures, we tend to view rest as an autonomous time of self-centered relaxation. But rest for the people of God is not just the cessation of work. 
It's also leaning upon Christ in worship and communion and fellowship with God's people. And the fact that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance dispels another misconception. The idea that the weekly Sabbath is a part of the ceremonial law and thus has been abrogated by the death of Christ. There are contemporary evangelicals that teach that. This assertion can't be true because the Sabbath was instituted over 2,000 years before the giving of the ceremonial law. It was instituted before the fall of Adam into, into sin. So let me show you. And I want to particularly dispel this. Dan and I and Scotty have talked. There are a lot of high-profile evangelicals, maybe some that you listen to on the radio, and they're, they're godly men, good men, but they'll throw this case out there unthinkingly. Ah, Sabbath doesn't bind men because it's part of the ceremonial law. Let me show you what Israel's pattern was before the giving of the ceremonial law. Look at Exodus 16. Hope you'll look this up in your Bible with me. It's always a good sound to hear pages turning and not beeping happen. Look at Exodus 16. This is before the giving of the ceremonial law. Exodus 16, verse 5. The Lord tells Moses, it shall be on the sixth day they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. And when we read down through this section, we find out it's because the Lord is going to tell them to set aside the next day as a Sabbath. And then in Exodus 16, verse 22, And so it was on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses, and he said to them, This is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you'll bake today, boil what you'll boil, and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. They laid it up until morning as Moses commanded, and it didn't stink, nor were there any worms in it. Moses said, Eat that. Today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you'll not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh, the Sabbath, there will be none. The point is, is this command is given long before the ceremonial law is given. It's given even before the moral law is given in Exodus chapter 20. And so God's not instituting a new ordinance. When Israelites hear this, what this comes is, is by way of reminder, oh, creation ordinance, rest, Sabbath. One day a week is to be restful and for the Lord. Well, the fact that a double portion of manna was given to Israel on the sixth day, but no manna was given on the seventh day, proves that the weekly Sabbath rest was already built into the creation order. So at this point, the Sabbath ordinance looks back to Genesis 2, 1 and 3. The Sabbath is a creational reality for all peoples at all times. This setting apart of one day in seven for worship and rest was a divine appointment ever since God created man upon the earth, and it's the most ancient of all the positive laws. So no wonder our American forefathers had this rhyme in their school books. A Sabbath well spent brings a week of contempt. What a glorious thing to have your children learn in school. So I want us to think very carefully about this because I want you to think more deeply than perhaps you want to. What did God do on the Sabbath day? Look back to Genesis 2 verses 1 through 3. We are told he rested. By resting on that day, God established the practice and principle of Sabbath observance. Why did he rest? Let me give you at least three reasons. First of all, by resting, God as creator was declaring that his work was finished. 
Notice in Genesis 2, verse 1, that's what we're told. Thus, the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. So God's rest, however, was not a cessation from all work. So listen carefully to this distinction. God creates. His work on the first six days was the work of creating. He's still working on the seventh day, but it's a different type of labor. Now he's involved in the work of providence of upholding his creation. This is why Jesus will say in John 5, 17, my father has been working until now and I myself am working. And he instructs that God always is laboring in providence. Providence is God's upholding, maintaining and preserving and governing of everything in creation, directing the course of men and nations, upholding the planets. God also continues to work in redemption. He continues to call his elect and sanctify them. Since he continues to work, why all this emphasis on rest? When God rested from the work of creation, he was declaring that it was completed exactly as he intended. That's the point. God is saying, it's finished, it's done, it's exactly what I wanted. Well, as well, what do we mean by saying that God rested? He rested to delight in his creation. In Exodus 31 we read these words, Exodus 31, it's, it's a, a part of a brilliant context. We hear these amazing words. In six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. The Lord was refreshed, we're told, on that seventh day. What a delightful phrase. Did, did God need to rest because he was physically exhausted? No, he's a spirit. He doesn't have a body like men. And we know that he'd not grown weary with his work of creation because he's omnipotent and immutable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. As Isaiah 40 says, the creator of the ends of the earth neither faints nor is weary. The refreshment of God, listen carefully, the refreshment of God on the seventh day was the refreshment of joy as he contemplated the beauty and perfection of all that he had done. Sandy will ever so often roll her eyes at me when I'll show her this, but my, my favorite two sites that I go to, I have these fed into me, and I feel like I'm, I'm knowing just the tiniest fragment of the delight God has, is one is, is a site about animals and, and crazy, wild, beautiful, gorgeous things that, that animals do. None of them are about animals being shot or trapped on this one. That's, that's a whole different site and the glory of that. That's on the taking dominion side. But that's on, on this. And the other is just scenes from nature of mountains, waterfalls, rivers, all that sort of thing. Well, that's what God did on the seventh day. He was refreshed when he rested from creation and he just took it all in. He surveyed and took great pleasure in his work. Well, a third reason why we say God rested is by resting on the seventh day, God was picturing the rest that he would now provide for man. I hope you heard that. God, by resting, was picturing, typifying, foreshadowing, prophesying the rest he would provide for man. God offered Adam and his descendants eternal rest. If Adam had not fallen into sin, he would have entered into that rest without passing through death. But God, by resting on the seventh day, pictured the promised rest. So his rest was a type of our eternal rest. The fact that God's rest is a a promise of eternal rest is confirmed repeatedly in Hebrews chapter 4. 
So we're told in Hebrews 4, since a promise remains of entering his rest, and it doesn't end until Hebrews 4.10 when we read, he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. And so the point is, is when God rests, he's saying, this is a type. This is what eternal life will be like. It's, it's rest with me. Now, it's fascinating in Hebrews 4. God doesn't compare the blessedness and peace of heaven with a workday Monday or a sports-saturated Saturday, but he likens heaven to a Sabbath day of rest, of, of resting from our own labors and fellowship with him. Now, let me think with you about the blessing and sanctification of the Sabbath. Having taught these things by his own rest, God formally consecrated the seventh day for man to do these things. In addition to giving us the example of rest, he, we're told, look at Genesis 2-3, he blessed the Sabbath day and sanctified it. I want you to think about those two things, blessed and sanctified. When God gives the formula for the fourth commandment in Exodus chapter 20, Notice that he takes those words out of Genesis 2. It's like he picks those up from the seventh day of creation and he imports them 2,200 years in time to Exodus 20 and thunders them from the mountain. And we hear there again, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and sanctified or hallowed it, set it apart. And so let me just stop and ask, is there any way in which this day, the day we're in right now, not the three hours, what Michael Scott Horton calls the Sabbath, not the three hours, but the day, the entire day. Is there any way in which you regularly, 52 times a year, set this day apart and view it as very different than the other six days of the week? It's interesting that when the Lord brings up this day, in Isaiah's time, in Isaiah 58, twice he calls it the holy day, the sanctified day, a day set apart, a day completely different than the other six. It's fascinating to me always that people come to me pastorally, and it's always they want a list. They want a list of what I can do and not do. And it's interesting because they'll have, here are my normal six-day activities, and how close can I get to those? Can I do this? Can my kids play sports? Can I go to the NASCAR race? Can I do this, 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 and this? Instead of saying, this day is antithetically different. It's sanctified. It's set apart from your worldly activities. It's, in other words, a day for a special purpose. The Lord removed this day. He picked up the seventh day and removed it from all other days, common days, and set it apart for this special religious use of worship. Now look at the, the giving of the fourth commandment in Exodus 20. I've referred to it a couple of times. In Exodus 20, as I said, the longest statement. It's fascinating how, how hard we work to suppress this. If you handed somebody who lived on Mars a Bible, who had never seen a Bible, and said, um, look at Exodus chapter 20, which of these commandments stands out the most? They would immediately say the fourth commandment. Because when you look at verses 8 through 11, it's stated with detail and rationale, and it's tied to the creation mandate. And notice how it begins. It begins with this word, remember. And none of the other nine commandments do. The reason why is, is because we are profoundly liable to forget this commandment, not just forget it, but suppress it in unrighteousness, more than we do the other nine. It was nothing new 
and that's why the word remember is used, it was nothing new when it was given to Moses on stone tablets at Mount Sinai, these words in Exodus 20, because it was already 2,200 years old. And so the Lord is saying to Moses, Moses, remember? Remember that pattern from creation, the creation ordinance? And then I want you to notice how the same commandment, when you look at, at look at carefully at the rationale for Sabbath, according to Exodus 12, we are told in verse 11, the reason for Sabbath is, look here, because what the Lord is about to do is drop a second bomb on you. Because here he tells them the first reason to observe the Sabbath. Exodus 20, verse 11, because in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. So the first reason the Lord says is, remember the Sabbath, they set it apart because it's a memorial of creation. Every week when you set this day apart, you're saying, I am rooted and grounded in God's view and pattern of creation. And so I'm setting aside this day to be conformed to his image and pattern. But then the Lord gives you a second, even more powerful reason to keep this day. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 5 and notice what we're told there when Israel is given the commandment again. Deuteronomy 5 You have all the same verbiage as in the first giving from Exodus 20, but look at Deuteronomy 5, verse 15. And Israel is told, in case creation and being conformed to God's holy pattern there is not enough, here's a second reason. Look at Exodus 5, verse 15. Remember, there's that word again. Remember, you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord God brought you out. From there, by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm, therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So the, the, the second reason is redemption. You were lost and then you were delivered. And so who but Christians should rejoice in this day more than any? Who but we who've been brought out of bondage, the tyranny of the world, the flesh, and the devil, should rejoice in giving this whole day to God as a memorial for redemption? Well, Think about some of the marks of honor placed upon the Sabbath. Some of the ways that we get the point that God is honoring this day. As I said already, both in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, when stated as a command, it's the longest by far. That should stand out to you. But another reason why we see honor placed upon this day is it has this solemn reminder and warning, both in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Remember, observe. And we have this statement prefixed to it. You shall not do any work. And it's delivered, interestingly enough, both positively and negatively. It's delivered positively when we are told, keep this day holy. And we're, it's delivered negatively. Do not work, which the, um, which the rest of days don't have such boundaries upon them. And then we see the honor placed upon it because it's enforced with more arguments to strengthen the command for us than any of the other nine. The Lord actually gives you arguments. With the other nine, he just states them flatly. You shall not murder. But when it comes to the fourth commandment, the Lord says, you shall not work because you'll be conformed to the pattern of, of God in creation. You shall not work on the seventh day because... This is a memorial of your redemption, your deliverance from bondage. And so what you see is it's like the Lord being an attorney giving his closing argument saying, I want to appeal to you. I want to give you reasons, many reasons why you'll learn to love this day. Let me point out why we need the Sabbath. 
We need the Sabbath because one day in seven is a creation ordinance and also one of the Ten Commandments. And these, these are all abiding moral law. The Fourth Commandment is in the first table of the Ten Commandments, which deals with man's abiding duty to God. When I've taught ethics courses before, I typically will start one of the lectures by saying this. Which is worse, to break the Sabbath or kill somebody? Always 100%. It's worse to kill somebody, I'd say, wrong. Because the first table of the law, which is not having any other gods, not engaging in false worship, not taking the name of God in vain, not profaning the Lord's day. The first table are all sins against God. The second table deal with our relationships to man, beginning with honoring father and mother and ending with not coveting. And the point that that Christian ethicists have said for the last 4,000 years is violating the first table is infinitely more egregious, infinitely more heinous than violating the second table. And so in terms of understanding which is weightier, that's why we say we, we need as much teaching as we can get on the Lord's day. And another reason why we need the Sabbath, we have to have a day. There must be a day commemorating creation. John Murray, who I showed you his book last week, uh, Principles of Conduct, which is the best treatment out there on creation mandates, Murray says in there, has God's work of creation ceased to be relevant for us? Has the fact that he created not in one grand act but in the space of six days become irrelevant? Is not the fact of creation basic to all Christian thinking? How frequently the God of the Bible is identified by the biblical writers as God who made the world and all things therein. More specifically, has the fact that God rested on the seventh day ceased to be relevant? Has the divine example become obsolete? Can we think of the example established by God's working and then resting as ever ceasing to be a matter, a pattern for man's conduct? The ret- questions to the, are rhetorical and the answers are all no. Well, another reason why we need the Sabbath is you need a day for rest. God has so wired you, whether you know it or not, whether you recognize it or not, God has so made you that you function best physically and mentally when you step back from your calling and focus on the Lord, worshiping Him, rejoicing in His creation, fellowshipping with His people. That's when you function best. It's when you're on God's 6-1 pattern. And another reason why we need the Sabbath is there must be a day for corporate remembering and proclaiming redemption. That's what we're told in Deuteronomy 5, that we as God's corporate people need this day so that we can proclaim the glories of his redemption. How should you keep the day holy? First of all, by preparation. That means forethought, not staying out late. We've told plenty of people our pattern, Sandy and I were the oddest parents ever, but our pattern was <clears throat> when our kids were little, <clears throat> we didn't have bedtimes on Friday nights. Sound like a bunch of crazy liberals, right? Didn't have bedtimes on Friday night. And the, I remember the first time we told our kids that and their eyes got this big. You mean we can stay up as late as we want? Have at it. And they thought, they, they thought their parents were the craziest liberal permissive parents ever. Of course, that meant they could stay awake in our basement for as long as they liked with padded walls and all that sort of thing. But... <laughs> But we said, but the other half of that is we're going to go to bed earlier than any other day the next day on Saturday night. 
And we're not going to spend the night at friends on Saturday night. We're not going to stay up late. We're going to go to bed earliest because, as Will said at our house, tomorrow's game day, meaning Sunday. As, as, um, we're going to take care of all our other affairs on other days, food, clothing preparation, but most of all, heart preparation. The best way to keep the Sabbath holy is to begin to prepare for it. Another way to do that is by sanctifying the whole day, not the three-hour McSabbath, we're thieves when we rob God of his due. There's some of you who really need to grapple with the whole issue of the relationship between morning and evening worship. That this is, I'm not sure how folks sanctify the Lord's Day if they punch out at noon. I, I fear they don't. And then we keep the Sabbath holy by making it joyful and as much like heaven as possible. God isn't glorified through drudgery. Your best meals should be on Sunday. Your best activities should be on Sunday. Your best relationships. I, I look forward to coming and being with y'all here on Sunday. You're my people. And I'm your people. You're stuck. We're stuck with each other. These are my best relationships. And I will tell you the high spots for me are hearing the word of pardon, of singing God's praise. When we sang a moment ago, I greet thee whom I sure redeemer art. I was thinking, this is as good as it gets. I'm singing songs that John Calvin sang right now. And then we prepare to keep there. We make the Sabbath holy by setting it apart, by saying it's different. I, I know it took me years. I know how to set certain days apart. I do that every January 4th. That's my wedding anniversary. I do it every October 12th. That's Sandy's birthday. These days are set apart. And on those days, we do things like have special tablecloths and balloons, the phone rings with congratulations from family. Sometimes money comes in the mail, all kinds of good things. The Jews understood this. And so each week, it still happens in Orthodox Jewish homes, each week as the sun went down on the evening before the Sabbath, a fascinating ritual would unfold. Here's what it looks like. Here's the practice of setting the day apart. Two candles would be lit on the dinner table. And they were called... Observe and remember, beginning phrases of the fourth commandment. And then there would be prayer, after which each member of the family would wish each other Shabbat Shalom, meaning peaceful Sabbath or good Sabbath. And then the children would be blessed by the, the patriarch or the matriarch of the family, who would go from child to child. He would kiss the forehead of each boy while saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. And he would kiss the forehead of each girl, and he would say, May God make you like Sarah and Rebecca, Rachel and Leah. And at this point, the family would sing, Peace be unto you. And the husband would bless his wife using the words of Proverbs 31. Sabbath bread, special bread that was only eaten on the Sabbath, would be blessed and broken and passed around. And then the best meal of the week would occur. And it would be eaten with much laughter and joy. And you couldn't help but notice, if you were in this home, that the day was being set apart. That is what God intended, for the day to be set apart. So let me say very briefly, just by way of application, conflict over the Sabbath is nothing new. Disagreement over the proper use of the day is at least 4,000 years old. So those seeking profit and pleasure have always been impatient with the Lord's model and his command to rest and worship and have chafed under it. I could show you several texts like Amos chapter 8 where Amos rebukes the merchants who say, when will the Sabbath be passed that we can trade wheat? Or Nehemiah chapter 13 
where Nehemiah rebukes the, the merchants who are, want to spend the Sabbath bringing in their wares and setting them up so they can be ready to go the next morning. Or of Jeremiah's day when people want special dispensation to bring burdens through the, the gates of Jerusalem. But conflict over the Sabbath is nothing new. And in every case in Scripture, God's people rebuke this and say, back off, this day is a creation ordinance for, wor for worship and rest. And then a second application, the Sabbath is meant to be enjoyed. It is, using the words of Jesus, it is for man. It's good. And that's why in Isaiah chapter 58, we are told to delight in the Sabbath. And God promises a blessing to those who do. I hardly agree with the, the sainted Scottish Presbyterian Robert Murray McShane who said, Did you ever meet a believer, a converted man in any country of any status, one who loved Jesus and strived for holiness, who didn't delight in keeping the whole day holy? He would say, because McShane was always the last person out of his building in Dundee on Sunday nights, and McShane would always say when people would say, oh, I'm sorry, we're keeping you here too long. And McShane would say, the Sabbath is not one minute too long for us. Well, think about what the Sabbath is for. It's meant to be enjoyed. Psalm 92, which is a psalm for the Sabbath. The psalmist writes, it's good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing your praises, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness at night. By the way, that's part of the exegetical foundation for us having morning and evening worship services. But I would say, just as a warning as we close, forgetting and profaning the Sabbath bears bitter fruit. The Sabbath is for man. Jesus says in Mark 2, it's for our benefit. And when we ignore it or forget it or profane it, we are the losers. William Wilberforce, my, my favorite politician of all time, said, he that forgets to keep the Sabbath at the beginning of the week will forget by the end of the week that he's a Christian. Matthew Henry, that amazingly prolific Presbyterian minister, said, The profaning of the Sabbath opens the door to all lawlessness. A man who would pollute holy time will keep nothing pure. Let me close with this picture. Men, when you're pursuing that woman, the woman, hopefully the woman you're sitting by right now, the one that you're going to marry, one of the great purposes of your spending time with her is so that you'll know her, so that you'll be able to love her more effectively and better when you're united in marriage. So also the Lord's Day is a day designed for time to be set apart so you might know the bridegroom, so that when you spend eternity with him, he might know you, you might know him, and your heart be prepared for heaven. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this gift you've given us, the Sabbath. And Lord, we confess far too often we have tried to, tried to scheme and plan so that we might spend the least amount of time giving the least amount of preparation, the least bit of benefit to this day. Lord, have mercy upon us. Change our hearts that we might revel in this day, looking forward to it with preparation. And we might delight in all the gifts, all the ordinary means of grace you have for us on this day. Lord, even on this Sabbath, we ask that you might bless us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. See you at 6 p.m. Oh, and for watermelon later, you will see an amazing sight, elders with knives in their hands. <laughs>